The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. But anyhow, folks, I actually wanted to use my opening remarks tonight. I was going to talk about Venezuela, and I am going to talk about Venezuela, but I'm going to use Venezuela to make a very important point. Because, you know, sometimes on these streams, we come up with little concepts, little concepts, little notions that we give names to, right? Um, one thing we've talked about is the, um, the Harrington light switch, right? Michael Harrington, the founder of Democratic Socialists of America, he was notorious for using a logical fallacy that I've called the Harrington light switch. And it goes like this. Uh, the idea is that, oh, ultra-left people that run around and talk about overthrowing the government and sell newspapers about Trotsky and burn the American flag are crazy. So therefore, we should all become Democrats and reformists. Michael Harrington was notorious. He builds this either-or situation. It's very true that the Marxist groups in the United States are disconnected from the broad masses of people. That's very true. It is very true that most of the communist sects in the United States don't have a broad following among the masses. That's true. However, what's not true is to then say, oh, therefore, click. You need to be, you need to be, um, you know, um, well, not this is Valentine Perez. You, therefore, need to be a reformist, right? And you need to, you know, boil everything down to the most common denominator. You need to not question U.S. foreign policy. I call that the Harrington light switch. It's a, it is a deception. Um, and I've, we've come up with a couple other th of these that we talk about on this stream. When, when there are deceptive or fallacious arguments that are commonly made, right? Michael Harrington, he's long dead and he's not the only person to make this argument. Um, you know, we give them a label. And so I want to also label a new logical or fallacious argument, a, a new fallacious argument that I hear a lot from people who believe in socialism. And that argument uh, we will call the Vosh deception or the Vosh illusion. I think we'll call it the Vosh illusion, right? Because I debated Vosh. We had our debate about tankies. And one thing that I said to Vosh that made him just, he just got angry when I said it because he knows it's true. I said, there will never be a socialism that the New York Times will approve of. And he just, you should have seen his reaction to that. That just, that just you know, go, go look at the clip. And I said, there will never be a socialism that the New York Times will approve of. That made him very angry because it's true. However, Vosh and others, they fall into this illusion. And, and this is a very, very common delusion that I hear among people who are socialists. And it's, it's anti-tankies, anarchists, social democrats. They have it in their head that one day there's going to be a country somewhere. That one day in South America or Africa or Asia... There's going to be a country that, that adopts socialism. 
They adopt a socialist economic system. And the New York Times and NPR, National Public Radio, and Fox News and MSNBC are going to go, wow, we may not agree with their economic system, but this is an upstanding country. They are practicing socialism by the book. Uh, you know, we don't agree with them, but uh, they are a legitimate government. They're not, uh, they're not violating human rights. They're democratic. They're pure. And uh, the USA would be wrong to destabilize and overthrow it because they're just so upstanding and democratic and pure, and we just have to respect it. And I swear, these people really do believe that someday, if, if only Cuba, if Cuba were just pure and democratic enough, the Americans would not try to overthrow it. And the New York Times would not, uh, would not accuse it of, of violating human rights. They really do believe that if North Korea just allowed opposition parties, and if North Korea just, um, you know, just, uh, you know, you know, had open elections and allowed opposition to have free speech, that the USA would go, by golly, well, we don't agree with them, but they're a good country. That will never happen. That will never happen. That will never happen. That will never happen. And the fact that you think it's going to happen is a very dangerous delusion. Venezuela is a great example of proof this will never happen. Hugo Chavez got elected in 1999, moved the country, to, they attempted to have a military coup against him before he'd even started moving the country towards socialism. After 2003, he started moving the country towards socialism. And immediately, it was all over U.S. media that Hugo Chavez was a brutal dictator. Hugo Chavez was a brutal dictator. Now, I've been to Venezuela. In Venezuela, the opposition has seats all across the parliament. They have ads on television. They have demonstrations against the government all the time. They practically bend over backwards to accommodate the opposition. Furthermore, Venezuela has a highly transparent election system. The Carter Center, run by former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, said that Venezuela has one of the best and most transparent election systems in the world. But somehow, Venezuela is declared to be a brutal dictatorship. The whole world monitored those elections. The U.N. monitored them, the Carter Center, all these institutions they said that Chavez was the winner of the elections. The opposition has ads on television. The opposition has, has you know, you know, candidates running for office. They have elected members of parliament. They have demonstrations in the streets. They, they have media outlets that support them. But somehow, Venezuela is a brutal dictatorship. Keep in mind, Venezuela does not have the death penalty. Did you know that? Venezuela doesn't even have the death penalty. Well, somehow according to U.S. media, Venezuela is a brutal dictatorship. Why? Because it is. Because, you know, because, because. And that's, if they can, if they can convince people that Venezuela is a brutal dictatorship, they can convince people that any country is a brutal dictatorship. The amount of freedom of speech, the amount of representation, the amount of, 
of electoral, you know, participation and transparency and oversights. I'm sorry, Venezuela is not a dictatorship by any means. It is a very open society. It just so happens the people in this open society called Venezuela have voted for Hugo Chavez and Maduro, have voted for the United Socialist Party. And so the United States declares it to be a dictatorship. Why? Because, you know, oh, Evo Morales. Evo Morales, they said he was a dictator. Now, he won all the elections fair and square. Uh, you know, uh, won all the elections fair and square. He was, you know, very popular in the country. Opposition parties were everywhere. They had news outlets. They had, and they still declared Evo Morales to be a dictator. Catch this one, Nicaragua. The Sandinistas, they led the revolution. Immediately, the USA began funding the Contras and imposing a civil war on Nicaragua. But then, in 1991, Nicaragua had an election. And the Sandinistas lost the election. And they stepped down from power. But yet, they were still dictators. Some, does that, I mean, they, you know, they ran in the election. They had an election in 1991. They lost the election. But still, as they were leaving office, they were dictators. And then they got reelected in 2006, and they were dictators again. You know, Daniel Ortega, he loses the election, and he's still a dictator. He gets back in 2006. He's a dictator. Uh, you know, they have election after election in Nicaragua. The Sandinistas win by huge majorities because of the fact that they've raised, but, you know, it's still a dictatorship. Why? Because, because it is. Right Now, I don't pretend that North Korea has the same level of freedom we have in the United States. Of course they don't. Their country is locked down and still technically at war with the United States and facing huge sanctions. There's thousands of troops on their border. It's, it's an authoritarian state. China is very authoritarian. Right? Vietnam, Cuba. I mean, these countries are fighting for their lives. And I'm not pretending that they have the same level of free speech. And, but if they did, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. If they did, U.S. media would still call them evil, brutal dictatorships. And if you want any proof of that, go look at Venezuela. Go look at Bolivia. Go look at Nicaragua. Right? They joked that uh, Pedro Castillo, you know, like the day after he won the election, he was a dictator. Right? You cannot, there will never be a socialism the New York Times will approve of. And that's what Jabba the Vosh and all these anarchists don't understand. In their minds, if only, if only Cuba would be more democratic and open, if only, then the New York Times would just have to respect them. Wrong. 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 It will never, it does not work that way. And if you if you can look at how blatantly they lie about Venezuela. How, how they say the elections are rigged when they ain't. How they, you know, they, they claim that it's, you know, this brutal authoritarian state when it doesn't even have the death penalty. Why should you believe what they say about China? Why should you believe what they say about Cuba? Why should you believe what they say about North Korea? Why? I mean, I'm sorry, if, 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 if you can look at Venezuela and Nicaragua and Bolivia 
and 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 if you can really look at the facts on the country and then you compare what is said in US media about these countries it will become very apparent to you that truth does not matter to US media it does not matter right doesn't matter as long as these countries are moving towards socialism it's an authoritarian brutal communist dictatorship and that is how us media works and that's what these folks don't understand they really do believe that somehow there will be a socialism someday the new york times will approve of that npr won't do hit pieces on that they won't accuse of mass genocide and murder they really do believe this they really believe in their hearts that somehow there will be a socialist government that their university professors will tell them it's okay to like, that mainstream media will tell them it's okay to like, that they won't have to swim against the current, they won't have to stand up and question authority. That's what they believe. These people really do believe that, that somehow there can be a socialism that they won't have to get any flack for defending. There'll be an easy socialism. There'll be a socialism that'll emerge and it'll really be socialism but U.S. media won't call them tankies for defending it. U.S. media won't call it a dictatorship. They really do believe this. They, they believe this, that somehow there will someday be a socialist or a communist society that will somehow be actually socialist and not be accused of all kinds of bad things in mainstream media. And as long as they hold on to that illusion, they're useless. I'm just being real with you. As long as they hold on to that illusion, they're useless. Because at the end of the day, um, if, you're, if you accept what the voice of our enemy says about Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, about China, about Vietnam, about Korea, you accept what the enemy says. You're constantly trying to prove and, and get win the win credibility in the eyes of the enemy. Internationally, pretty soon you're going to do that domestically. Man, right? It applies domestically as well. Right? If you're going to let yourself be programmed and brainwashed by American media when it comes to international issues, you might as well be programmed and brainwashed when it comes to domestic issues. And they are. And they are. I mean, and we see that, right? I mean, it's, you know, Trump is a Trump is a neo-Nazi. We're all going to die unless Joe, Joe Biden wins. And, uh, you know, and if, if Joe Biden doesn't win, we're all going to be in death camps. And, uh, you know, Kamala Harris is the savior. And, no, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you listen to the bread tube narrative. They do accept what mainstream media says when it comes to U.S. domestic stuff. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's not not too surprising. That's generally how this stuff works um it's okay it's okay to question what mainstream media says it's okay to disagree with your teachers and your college professors it's okay it is okay it is okay and if you can't do that you ain't really a socialist and that is what needs to be said and uh, as much as as much as that's a hard pill to swallow, as much as that's something that some people just can't wrap their heads around. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm a socialist, but Fidel is a dictator. Oh, I'm a socialist, but China is. E I'm sorry, but if you can't get over that, 
that hurdle. You know, you have to, you have to take sides. There's a very good book, and it's it's a book by Vladimir Lenin, and it's a book that people generally don't read. Right, the books that people read by Vladimir Lenin, they read the State and Revolution. They read what is to be done. They read imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. They read left-wing communism and infantile disorder. But there's a very important book that Vladimir Lenin wrote, and it's called Proletarian Revolution and the Renegade Kautsky. Proletarian Revolution and the Renegade Kautsky. And if you look at that book, that book is all about how the Russian Revolution happened, and Karl Kautsky, the leader of German social democracy, declared that the Bolsheviks should not have taken power because it was not democratic. They should have been elected. They should not have taken power. They shouldn't have declared the Soviet government. They should have waited for a constituent assembly and won a majority of delegates in that constituent assembly and with a democratic popular mandate composed a socialist constitution. Because the Bolsheviks instead declared the Soviets, the, work, the councils, to be the new government, declared a Soviet government. Uh, therefore, they were not democratic. It was a dictatorship. And in that pamphlet, Lenin very blatantly lays out, first of all, that democracy is a lie. Right? Democracy is a lie. The military is sent in to crush striking workers that the rich people write the laws and have the authority and use the media to deceive people. And, uh, and the, you know, that even the most democratic capitalist society is full of political repression to serve the capitalists, number one. And that true, full democracy is only possible in a society in which there are no classes. As long as there are a small group of people who control the means of production, those small group of people are going to control the government. And so the, the hope for getting to true democracy is the hope of getting to socialism. And that every country in the world has a clause in its constitution that makes freedom go away. In the United States, you read our constitution, yeah, we've got free speech, we've got freedom of religion, we've got freedom of assembly, unless Congress declares war, and then you don't. Did you know that? If there's a congressional declaration of war, yeah, all of our freedoms go away real fast, real fast. If Congress declares war, you think during World War II when Congress declared war on the Nazis, you could have a pro-Nazi demonstration? No, because it was a state of war and the U.S. Constitution made that clear. When they declare war, not when they invade, and they haven't had a congressional de declaration of war since the Second World War. It's all been police actions and interventions. But when they actually declare war in the United States, or when they actually declare a national emergency or martial law, under such circumstances, all your rights go away because it's an emergency, because the regime is under attack. The amount of freedom that you have in any society, in any society, is based on how safe the regime feels and how stable the country is. Right? All right, Gaddafi on democracy. When the regime feels very safe and when society is very stable, you tend to have a lot of freedom and say what you want because society is very stable. 
and when society is unstable and when the regime is facing the threat of being overthrown, then you don't. That's generally how it works. Why is it that no one in the world ever talked about human rights and the rights of man and freedom of assembly and freedom of speech and natural rights? Why did no one talk about that until like the 1400s in Europe? Why? Is that because people were evil until then? And then suddenly, magically, with the birth of John Locke, they became good? Of course not. It's because this is based on a level of economic development. Try establishing a society with the modern level of freedom and democratic rights in feudalism and the conditions of feudalism in medieval Europe, in the Dark Ages. Try saying, okay, everyone can think whatever they want um, and everyone can just do whatever we want. We're going to elect the person who's in charge. It wouldn't work because people are starving. When people are desperate, might is right prevails and all of that. The reason... The reason that they invented feudalism was not because people were just evil and there was somebody up there. And this is what anarchists think, and it's really childish. They think there was some guy up there who was just like, I don't want people to be free. How can I oppress them? And it's like, no, no. In order for society to function at that level of development with an agricultural economy, you're farming, subsistence farming, basically. It was necessary for some people to be in charge of others. And it was necessary for people to believe that if they so much as questioned the religious authority, that they deserve to be burned at the stake, right? Freedom emerged when the level of economic development gave birth to a higher level of stability in society. And that higher level of stability in society enabled people to have more freedom. And that even applies to capitalist society. The level of freedom we have here in the United States has been increasing as the country has become more stable. Probably the, the height of freedom in the United States was the Warren Court of the U.S. Supreme Court. Right? Under the Warren Court, we got, there was a very famous court ruling. Very famous court ruling. Um, I don't know if people have ever heard of it. I learned about it when I was a university student. Brandenburg versus Ohio. Have you ever heard of Brandenburg versus Ohio? It was a very famous Supreme Court case. Charles Brandenburg, who was the leader of the Ohio Ku Klux Klan, bought time on TV to give a speech. And so Charles Brandenburg, with the time that he paid for, got on TV and he said, I don't know what he sounded like. He was from Ohio. I mean, we think of the Ku Klux Klan as being Southern hillbillies, but he said something that probably sounded like this. He said, I want people to go and take acts of revengeance against elected officials who voted for the Civil Rights Act. He was arrested for that. Now, if I were Charles Brandenburg's lawyer, I would have argued that revengeance is not a word in the English language, so there clearly wasn't a threat. But that's, that's not what happened. Charles Brandenburg was convicted in Ohio for criminal syndicalism. 
right? So they convicted him of the law they used to persecute the IWW, the syndicalists, like the Wobblies. But they, they charged him with criminal syndicalism, advocating violence. And he was charged with advocating political violence on television because he called for acts of revengeance against elected officials who supported the Civil Rights Act. So Charles Brandenburg, I think he had the ACLU uh, backing him up. They went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that because Charles Brandenburg did not call for a specific criminal act, he did not specify what he wanted done. He didn't name a specific victim. He just gave this vague concept of revengeance that that was elected speech. And, I mean, I don't know any country in the world that's had that level of freedom where you can get on TV and call for, you know, call for acts of violence against elected officials, basically. Um, but that's what the United States was in 1967, 68, 69. Um, that's not good law anymore. Since 9-11, uh, we've had terrorism laws, right? And the terrorism laws that we have are extremely vague. Um, you know, uh, material aid to terrorism, promoting terror. I mean, you know, I mean, in theory, right, someone like Charles Brandenburg might be able to theoretically get on TV and make that claim. But you know, if a Muslim imam got on TV and said, oh, you know, we acts of revenge, and then he would go to jail immediately. You know, uh, you know, if a white supremacist got on TV, they, he would go to jail immediately. Uh, Charles Brandenburg was a white supremacist, and I think he did. I mean, he would. Nowadays, that's not good law. Why? Because the USA is less stable. I mean, it's, it's less stable. Thank you, Io. I appreciate the super chat. The USA is less stable. There's more instability in the country, and so it's necessary to regulate things. It is a less stable country. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, but yeah, the Warren Court, the Warren Supreme Court was probably the height of civil liberties in the United States. Uh, you know, uh, and yeah, no society had ever had that level of freedom before, but as that was, USA had a booming economy at that point. And, um, Things have drastically changed, drastically changed. And now with their anti-terrorism laws and now with the surveillance state and, you know, the way that people get disappeared, they operated a black site, you know, about Homan Square, Google Homan Square in Chicago. The Chicago police operated what they called a black site. What that was, so when you get arrested, this is interesting, you should know this, right? You hear black site, it sounds like something out of a horror movie or something, but it actually has a very technical meaning. Okay, so you should know what it is. So a black site is this, right? When you get arrested, you get handcuffed, and then they take you to jail. And it is public record that you are being held at that jail. You go from the arrest to the jail. Ah, but if you go to a black site, there's no record of where you are. No one can find you. Right? If you're in the jail, it's public record that you're in the jail. People will know that you're in the jail. People can find out if you're in the jail. But a black site is this weird purgatory between jail and arrest, where they arrest you, and then you just kind of vanish. You just kind of vanish. 
And then three days later, you show up in the jail. And the Chicago police were doing this in Chicago. They were doing it to African-Americans uh, uh, who were accused of being involved in gangs. They would get arrested and they would be disappeared and taken to this place in Holman Square and their families couldn't find them and no one would know where they are. And they were handcuffed to the floor and they were subject to conditions that people describe as torture. And then three days later, they'd be in jail and they would be facing charges or they'd be harangued or they'd be released. And then in 2012, yes, Red Illuminati, I'm getting to it. I know you were there. In 2012, they grabbed anti-NATO protesters, Occupy Wall Street protesters, including myself, went to Chicago in 2012 to protest against the NATO summit. And they, they raided one of the anarchist houses in Chicago. I mean, not, not where I was staying. I was staying somewhere else. But they raided one of the anarchist houses in Chicago, and they took a whole bunch of protesters to the black site at Holman Square and held them there. One of them uh, who was held there was actually ultimately acquitted uh, of terrorism in court. The jury found him not guilty. He hadn't committed terrorism. That was pretty intense, folks. Um, now, they weren't doing that kind of thing in 1969. Now, there was, you know, they, there was the COINTELPRO program and, and you know, they did murder Fred Hampton and such, but that wasn't routine. That kind of thing wasn't routine then. But in Chicago, for quite some time, operating a black site was routine. Why? Because the USA is becoming less stable. When societies are more prosperous and stable, people have more freedom. When societies are less prosperous and less stable, people don't have freedom. And the moralization of this, again, these anarchists really do believe, they really do believe that, that freedom is a moral issue, that freedom is about morality. And it is not. That, that it's that whole, and this is, again, the anarchists are wrong, and Jordan Peterson and the right wing are wrong. And this is, this is something that we must understand. This is what is so important about historical materialism, okay? Historical materialism. Historical materialism has us understand that history is constantly in motion and that the economic base of society gives birth to the superstructure and that the political form, the kind of government you have, social relations is rooted in the economic base. When we had hunter-gatherer civilization, Ulysses S. Grant, when we had hunter-gatherer civilization, as a result of that, we had political forms that matched it. We had tribalism, tribal communalism, tribes. When we developed slavery, ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, Greece, Rome, those were slave empires, slave societies, there were political forms that matched those societies. And when we moved to feudalism, there were political forms that matched feudalism. And now that we have capitalism, and thank you for the super chat, Andrew, I do appreciate it. Now that we have capitalism, we have political forms that match capitalism. And that's generally how these things work. And it's not an issue of, of moralizing the good society versus the bad society. No. It's the society that is prosperous enough and stable enough that it is enabled, it is enabled to have the luxury of having, uh, you know, openness and 
and such, and there's the society that is more authoritarian. And what Jordan Peterson doesn't understand is Jordan Peterson, he talks about the lobsters. You know, the lobsters have hierarchy in their genes. Uh, Gaddafi, we're talking about Gaddafi. Lobsters, they have hierarchies. You know, the lobsters do, and antidepressants work on lobsters, and so therefore hierarchies are just natural, you, you know. And like, first of all, that's a ridiculous argument. It's a ridiculous argument for a couple reasons. Reason number one, uh, it's ridiculous because that argument could be used to justify any hierarchy. Um, any, any hierarchy could be used could be justified by that. Well, slavery is okay. Look, the lobsters, some lobsters are better than others, right? What, you know, the Nazi government, Hitler being the dictator, the lobsters, you know, I mean, you, you could use that argument to justify any hierarchy. At that point, you're saying all hierarchies are okay. You're not just saying that the ones that, that happen to exist are okay. You're saying that that is an argument that, that would apply to everything. So that's the first thing. And the second point is, yes, the point he's making is that it is in the human's DNA to have the ability to function in society and create hierarchies. That is true. That is true. It is also in human DNA to run. Did you know that? It is in your DNA to run. Humans naturally have the ability to run. But do you run all day long? Because I sure don't. I run when I need to. When I decide to, I have the ability to run, but I don't run all the time. And that's what it, the, when it comes to hierarchies, human beings have the ability to create hierarchies. And in some instances, again, when you're having hunter-gatherer civilization, when you're at, in, in the conditions of, of primitive, you know, primitive scarcity and subsistence farming, it may be beneficial to have hierarchies. But as society becomes more prosperous and more developed, and there's a level of greater abundance in society, the ability to loosen those hierarchies emerges and the ability to have a better level of equality and more freedom emerges. And just because we have the ability to have hierarchies doesn't mean we have to, right? If, you, if, if the car had been invented and human beings still ran everywhere because that's just the way we do things, people would go, no, we can drive the car, right? That Yes, when hierarchies are necessary, we have the ability to create them, but we also have the ability, as we get to a society that doesn't necessitate them, to move away from hierarchies. And this is what Peterson doesn't understand, and this is what anarchist types don't understand. Anarchist types say all hierarchy is evil, you must fight against it, it's a bad moral choice. Well, they're, they're wrong, that's not materialism. Jordan Peterson says, well, hierarchies are just natural. The lobsters have them. Well, that's not materialism either. Materialism tells us that hierarchies and the nature of society and the state and social relations changes based on the economic base. That's how it works. I mean, occasionally someone will just send me a nasty super chat. and You know, I ignore that. But for the most part, I answer them. But that, that was just someone... Someone throwing slime at me. But, I'm, um, but, uh, but that's the point. That's the point. And that if you have historical materialism and the Marxist understanding called historical materialism, you can recognize why some societies are authoritarian, why some societies are not, 
you can recognize why throughout human history, no one had thought of human rights and freedom until like, you know, the 1400s in Europe. You can recognize why socialist countries in in different uh, in different conditions, um, you know, you know, there you go. Uh, believe in moral truths and more moral truths. And you can recognize why these things happen. You can recognize this. Historical materialism is very vital. It's a very, very vital, vital thing. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And that thinking about Venezuela uh, and how they, they declare it a dictatorship and thinking about, you know, the, the Vosh delusion that somehow, if, you know, there's going to be a socialism someday that's just so open and democratic enough that, you know, you know, that, that made me think about all of that. So I, I just wanted to get that out there. But um, the other thing was uh, l the last stream we did, someone asked me about Eugene Dennis. So I actually have a copy of his book, Ideas They Cannot Jail by Eugene Dennis. And it's a collection of speeches and articles that Eugene Dennis, you know, gave, um, you know, and this was at the time of McCarthyism. He was the general secretary of the Communist Party. William Z. Foster was the chairman. And they put out this book, Ideas They Cannot Jail. They put this book out. Um, they put this book. Did I miss a super chat here? Let me let me go back. Let me roll it back. Soup USA and uh, oh, mutual aid and charity. All right, we can talk about that. Mutual aid and charity. I thought it might be interesting since we talked about Eugene Dennis and his role in the history of the Communist Party. I thought it might be interesting to actually see if um, if there might be. Um, something in the book that would be worth discussing. Um, so I'm going to turn to... It's an interesting book. There's all kinds of stuff in here. I think there's a speech for like Stalin's birthday in this book. But, um, but this, this is... This section I, I want to read to you here. Right? Um... This, this section here, I, I want to read to you something. So in 1948, and this kind of relates to what we were talking about. In 1948, the Communist Party of the United States was put on trial for the crime of allegedly conspiring to overthrow the U.S. government. And uh, Eugene Dennis, you know, being a spokesperson for the Communist Party, he gave a summation to the jury. So I thought I might actually read to you from his summation to the jury, right? So I'm just going to read to you. I'm going to read to you. This is from Eugene Dennis's summation to the jury. He said, we communist leaders were ostensibly indicted for our principles. We were not indicted for reducing the size of communist party clubs, a matter not prescribed by statute. We were not indicted on charges of alleged perjury or alleged use of false passports. We were not indicted because of some of us have changed our names or because some communists call each other by their first names. But the prosecution has tried to smuggle each extraneous charge into this trial because it is unable to bring any evidence or credible testimony of conspiracy to teach and advocate the duty and necessity to overthrow the United States government by force and violence. 
That is why they had to rely on this backdoor effort to create an atmosphere of mystery around our Communist Party. The jury might well draw some conclusions of its own from the prosecution's false witnesses who testified that they had they had covenanted with the prosecution for 30 pieces of silver and from that time sought opportunity to betray their trade union brothers, their own blood relatives, and their family next door. They testified that they were employed by the FBI, which schooled them to ply their sordid trade of falsifications, provocations, and disruptions. They confessed nay boasted, that they are without shame or scruple. Thus, the prosecution's false witnesses inevitably inadvertently proved the Marxist thesis that the end and means are interrelated and inseparable. They proved that the despicable conspiratorial methods adopted by the prosecution in its attempt to convict the defendants are as un-American as they are sinister. The fact is that the only conspiracy which has been proved in this trial is that to which the prosecution and the false witnesses are party, the bipartisan conspiracy to destroy the Bill of Rights and Peace. Uprise against tyrannical government. Wrote it down. Yet the prosecution and its false witnesses have the unmitigated gall to tell you jurors that we communists who teach that the end justifies the means. It is true that some communists, concerned for their jobs, their liberty, and sometimes even their lives, do independently decide to conceal their names or otherwise exercise their constitutional right to maintain privacy with their political affiliations. This is no crime, but the jury should ask itself, What goes on in a country when such concealment becomes increasingly a necessity, not only for communists, but for non-communist progressives, trade unionists, and African-Americans and professionals? Does this state of affairs not reveal the existence of an evil, reactionary political atmosphere in which growing numbers of Americans have had to take such measures of self-protection? How is this evil to be remedied? Will these conditions be eliminated by the prosecution's proposal not only to convict us defendants, but to outlaw the Communist Party? And by its implied program and by that it's implied it's a program for introducing a more political repression into American life? We communist leaders disagree. We think the repressive measures are the surest way to crucify the Bill of Rights, to compel the organization of secret societies, and to force millions of people to walk carefully and look behind them before they speak. We say the only way to overcome such a police state atmosphere is to enforce the Bill of Rights and make sure that every American, Jew or Gentile, African-American or white, native or foreign-born, communist or non-communist, is secure for economic, social, and political penalty for his beliefs, race, creed, or color. Regardless of how some communists may have sought to protect themselves against witch hunts and this Nazi style punishment for guilt by association, the whole record in this trial proves that we defendants and our party fully, frankly, and proudly declare our views and aims. All right, All right CFR. Resources. All right. Moreover, the 35 defense witnesses provided the jury with an opportunity to see a cross-section of the Communist Party membership. The contrast between these upstanding men and women, the prosecution Judas parade, cannot have escaped your notice. 
Probably most of you jurors never saw a real live communist before you came to Foley Square. Perhaps you were surprised to find the descendants of Daniel Boone, John and Priscilla Alden sharing leadership in our ranks with descendants of African-American slaves. You must also have noted that just half of these witnesses were World War II veterans. The record shows that there are 15,000 such veterans in our relatively small Communist Party. Many of them, including four of other defendants, hold leading posts in the party. It cannot have escaped your notice that men and women, African-American and white, and all national and religious origins and occupations, most of them workers and trade unionists, find their way to our Communist Party on the basis of their own experience and socialist convictions. That we distinguished and noble friends outside our ranks and you jurors also learned, even though one of them, that, that great American Paul Robeson, was not able to do much more than say he knew to the defendants and some of us as friends. One need not be either a communist or a communist sympathizer or a progressive or a trade unionist to recognize the difference between people with good or evil intent. One need not understand a single Marxist principle or agree with a single word ever written by Lenin to recognize the real conspiracy symbolized by the prosecution and its false witnesses or to know that the defendants and the defense witnesses are women and men who dedicated, who are dedicated to serving the interests of the American people, African-American and white, and seek to promote peace and democratic advance. Now let us go down to the prosecution's $64 question. Do any of the principles of Marxism-Leninism mean the duty and necessity to overthrow the United States government by force and violence? We defendants have proved that they do not. But what is the, what has the prosecution produced to substantiate its fabricated charge? Its main reliance is on what it refers to as the paraphernalia of conspiracy. This is what we plain-speaking communists call books. This is the classic literature of Marxism-Leninism, an indispensable part of modern mankind's knowledge, culture, scientific thought, and social advance. Before analyzing, if only in capsule form, the great liberating principles of scientific socialism dealt with in these classics, I would like to bring the jury's attention to several vital facts. Some of the classics put into the evidence by the prosecution have been circulating freely in this country for 10 years, some for 30 years, some for 50 years, some for over 100 years. The Communist Party has publicly promoted the publication, distribution, and study of most of them for 30 years, and not accepting 1944 and 1945 of the Communist Political Association. A special honor and symbol attached to these books, where the Marxist classics have been banned, free speech and free press have been banned, where they have been put on trial, men and women have been put in concentration camps without trial. Where these books have been burned, human beings have been consumed in crematoria. These books are a sort of barometer of the political climate. It is known to the jury and written on record of this trial that these very Marxist-Leninist books were returned to free circulation by the people of Germany, Italy, France, and Japan when American, British, and Soviet soldiers came to liberate these lands from the Nazi and Mikado tyranny. Strange as it may seem, these are the books which the communist leaders have been confronted with in this court. The prosecution does not even claim that we wrote them. It does not even say we defendants quoted from them. 
It says merely that somebody recommended them as an outline, as additional reading for future study. The prosecution professes to put in issue that we communist leaders understood these books to mean, but no body of thought, least of all scientific socialism, can possibly be tried in a court of law. No court or jury can determine what goes on inside of our heads or the beliefs of any of the defendants being tried. Nevertheless, we communist leaders have proved what the principles of Marxism-Leninism are and what they are not. What does the record reveal about the principles for which we are indicted? Do they, for example, include the principle of dog-eat-dog, of each for himself, and the devil take the hindmost? No, those are the principles of free enterprise and of the imperialist war makers. What are the Marxist-Leninist principles to which we 11 defendants proudly declare our adherence and which we endeavor to apply in the interests of our party and our country? These principles are outlined in the, ten outlined in the testimony of the defense, especially in William Z. Foster's deposition. They are also stated in various ways in relation to a host of historical and social events and developments in the Communist Manifesto, the State and Revolution, the Foundations of Leninism, the History of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the chief Marxist-Leninist classics put into evidence by the prosecution. And the record establishes that the following principles of Marxism-Leninism. First, that the struggle between social classes, between exploiters and exploited, between capital and labor has been and is the motor power, the moving force in the development of civilized society, regardless of the will or desires of men. Second, that the working class is the most progressive class in modern society, the class in league with the future, destined to rule the nation and free the peoples of the tyranny and oppression of vested capitalist interests from class and national oppression. Therefore, the working class is the grave digger of dying capitalism and the creator of a new society, socialism. Furthermore, further, that neither evolutionary social progress nor revolutionary social change can be brought about by minorities, adventurous plots, or by palace revolutions. Basic social change, social revolution, can only be achieved when objective circumstances and the teaching of experience bring tens of millions of people to act together under the leadership of the working class in accordance with the majority will. Third, after the attainment of state power, the working class and its allies can maintain their rule only by establishing the dictatorship of the proletariat and by using the power of the new working class state, then the only legal constitutional state power, to smash the old state machinery of the exploiters of the old capitalist minority and to crush their counter-revolutionary resistance. The dictatorship of the proletariat is a working class dictatorship against the exploiters. It is the rule of the majority of the people. It is democracy for the great masses of people. It must establish and consolidate socialism and will ultimately create a classless communist society. Fourth, that our Marxist-Leninist principles establish that some wars are just, liberating, and progressive and should be supported, while other wars are imperialist and reactionary, unjust, and should be opposed, whether waged by one's own government or some other government. Fifth, that there is a brotherhood of all working people whose common historic aim and interest in peace, national freedom, and social progress unite them against their common enemies in the spirit 
of working class solidarity and internationalism. Sixth, that it is a principle of Marxism-Leninism that to fulfill its historic aim, the working class needs and creates a political party of a new type, a vanguard party, a party of socialism, which is guided by the science of Marxism-Leninism and champions the immediate and fundamental interests of the working class and all oppressed people. These Marxist-Leninist principles set forth in the classics and in our testimony sum up the fundamental truths distilled from American and world history and general working class experience. They are different from what the Wall Street Journal frankly and approvingly calls the jungle principle of the Atlantic Pact. They have nothing in common with the principles of, say, the DuPonts or the Rockefellers or John Foster Dulles or John Rankin or the National Association of Manufacturers or the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Strange as it may seem to the jury, the prosecution has never openly and directly challenged our forward-thinking and scientific Marxist-Leninist principles, for which ostensibly we communist leaders have been indicted. Nor has the prosecution dared to challenge openly the historic goal of the working class, the eventual socialist reorganization of American society, which we communist leaders advocate. As we testified, socialism is the public ownership of the great banks, factories, utilities, mines, and railroads, and all productive resources, and the management of the nation's economy by the people's government, at whose head stands the working class with its communist vanguard. We defendants have testified that under socialism, as in the Soviet Union, there is no exploitation of the many by the few, no racial or national inequality, no religious persecution, and no fear of unemployments. Birthday gifts. All right. There is no economic or social basis for seeking to subjugate other nations and peoples. Hence, there is no reason or basis for a socialist state to pursue a foreign policy of aggression. Quite the contrary. We have further testified in our earnest belief that the strengthening of socialism in the country, where it has been established in the USSR, and the attainment of socialism in all countries will forever end the threat of reaction, fascism, and war. And so open up new boundless opportunities for humanity's well-being and social progress. Whether or not any of you jurors agree, even in a small part, with what the communist leaders believe about socialism is not an issue here. Just when the American people will decide they want socialism and how they will achieve it is a question for the majority of our fellow citizens, for the working people, and for the future. However, the prosecution has professed to pose before you jurors a hypothetical theoretical question, namely, do we defendants believe that the socialist reorganization of American society can ever at any time or under any circumstances be accomplished without the overthrow of the United States government by force and violence. In falsely answering this question, the prosecution has deliberately jumbled and sought to confuse the important difference between principles and ultimate aims on the one hand and strategy and specific tactics required to apply these principles on the others. But as you learned from Foster's deposition and other defense evidence and testimony, we communist leaders teach and emphasize the realization of working class aims, 
the application of the principles of scientific socialism necessitate the adoption of a definite strategy and flexible tactics in accordance with historic realities in accord with time, place, and circumstances. Government Exhibit Number 33, The Foundations of Leninism, deals extensively with this distinction in Chapter 7. What does this exhibit underscore in regard to what we Marxists mean by strategy and tactics? It tells us the real Marxists must first understand that they cannot accomplish their socialist aims by wishful thinking. They must study what is going on in each particular country and each historic period and in each stage of a country's political life, including what's what in the working class movement. They must know what the grievances and aspirations that stir the millions of common people to action at each given time and place. They must know how to identify the main enemy of progress, the danger to peace at each particular, a particular stage of events. They must shape their policies and set their course in accord with objective reality and the will of the majority of the workers and the common people. That is why we defendants teach Marxist-Leninist strategy. It must be clear to the jurors that there is nothing in any of these teachings to substantiate the prosecution's false charge that because we communist leaders are Marxists, we advocate the duty and necessity of the forcible overthrow of some hypothetical future U.S. government as the only means to achieve the ultimate goal of the working class socialism. How can the prosecution tried? How has the prosecution tried to prop up its monstrous, fantastical charge? It has parroted the undeniable fact that this is the law of inevitable, inevitable proletarian revolution. The prosecution has borrowed a leaf from Hitler's Mein Kampf in an effort to make it appear that this law says socialism cannot be peacefully achieved, and that we communist leaders have a blueprint for when and how to bring about the forcible overthrow of the government. The law of inevitable proletarian revolution was and is a basic social law. It exists independent of the intent of defendants, any other Marxists, or the atomic fission, just as atomic fission exists independent of the, nuclear, the will of nuclear physicists. This law of social change and revolution says socialism will ultimately be established in every country, but it does not say when or how. We communist leaders have proved what scarcely needed proving, that reactionary classes or minority cliques in power have used force and violence to block all progress wherever they were able to do so. A very striking recent example of this was the warning that even the mildest social measures to meet the needs of the people would be met by violent counter-revolution, which was voiced and advocated by John Foster Dulles in the New York Times. We defendants are proud that Marxists have, for 101 years, used their understanding of the laws of human history to advance social progress, to defend immediate as well as future interests of the working people. Everywhere in the world, force and violence are the instruments of monopoly rule, especially in its drive toward fascism. And in every time and place, the piously professed abhorrence of violence has been a hypocritical disguise adopted by reactionary vested interests, by those who oppose anything and everything that people may do to promote life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To this rule, the Foley Square trial is no exception. So there you go. And he explains in great detail how the Communist Party never advocated the overthrow of the government through violence. And he goes on for pages explaining this. I could keep reading. I would be reading it to you all night. It's a very well-written speech that he gave to the jury. 
Uh, very, very well written. And he talks about the Russian Revolution, how the Bolsheviks didn't want to have a violent revolution. It was forced on them. Um, he talks about the Chinese Revolution and how it was, again, forced on them. Um, and he talks about you know the United States and what they advocate. He talks about how Abraham Lincoln was forced, forced to have a violent revolution against the slaveholders. Um, and he talks about the American Civil War um, and, you know, I mean, he, he talks about early American Marxists and he, I mean, he, he talks about everything. And I mean, it's, he goes quotes from Stalin and he quotes, I mean, this is like really some intense stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, he talks about why the communist party first opposed world war II and then changed their position. Um, and, you know, and how the communist party's position on world war II changed. And this is, if you really want like oh, how, like, you have to understand that, you know, that in the 1930s, in the 1930s, Eugene Dennis was, he, re, he was a leader of a party that represented millions of people, okay? There were millions of people that were in labor unions controlled by the Communist Party, that were in unemployment councils controlled by the Communist Party, that, that to actually be a member of the party was very demanding. So it was only, you know, in the tens of thousands, the membership but they they represented literally millions of Americans. Okay, there were millions of Americans that were were you know were under their leadership in labor unions, under their leadership in in uh, in in unemployment councils. Uh, you know, were, I mean, it was it was an organization that represented millions of people, and so because they were not just silly people LARPing on the internet. Because of that, they were held to higher political standards. They had to speak with clarity about what they believed, right? Um, you know, they had to they had to you know speak in very clear language. He's explaining here what Marxism Leninism actually means. He's explaining here what they actually believe. I mean, and he goes and I mean, it's it's this is serious stuff. This is what a serious communist leader sounds like, right? This is this is. This is the kind of stuff you should be reading. If you, you are seriously interested in building a socialist movement, this is what you should be listening to. Don't listen to some, some silly person who has a mohawk and waves their gun around on YouTube. Don't listen to some anarcho-Maoist on the internet. You know, don't listen to some, you know, some, you know, job of the Vosh or, you know, somebody who think, you know, is, rejects all existing socialist countries. If you want to know what serious communist leaders sound like, if you want to know what they sounded like, check this out, right? Read Eugene Dennis, read William Z. Foster, read Gus Hall. You know, I mean, these are, read the Black Panthers, read their writings, read about how they discussed these issues, okay? That's what I recommend you do. I could keep reading that all night because it's just great. I mean, look at all the points he's making about what Marxism, Leninism is and so many good things. So that's, um, you know, I think there, there's got to be a PDF of this book available somewhere. You know, um, you know, but yeah, this is William Z. Foster, Gus Hall, Eugene Dennis, Huey Newton, Paul Robeson. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, th these folks were serious. All right. And they they talked like serious worker politicians. I like that phrase worker politicians, because part of what communists do is they encourage working people to enter politics on their own accord. And so when working people engage in politics. They are worker politicians. And I like that. Worker-politicians. That's something we need. We need worker politicians. We need ordinary working people who understand that they are workers and have a socialist, anti-imperialist consciousness, 
to enter politics on their own accord. We need worker politicians. I consider myself to be a worker politician, and I hope that you will become a worker politician, right? And that's my hope, right? And that that a worker politician, that is that is what we are, we, you know, we we need more of in this country at this time. So I just wanted to, to give you a little blast from the past. And on that note, folks, uh, names and locations, I'll call you out as I see you, and then we'll start hammering out the super chats. Names and locations, who's with us tonight? Names and locations. <laughs> 